0: The problem is that no matter how many people get ill, at some percentage people are going to die from it and another percentage of people are going to have long-term consequences. So the more people that get infected, the more death we're going to see. And since we've already saturated or nearly saturated our healthcare system, more spread is going to be more problematic. There's nowhere for those people to turn to get the care they need.
1: Just recommending certain things and not enforcing them historically in public health doesn't work. We need mandates for certain things. And right now to save lives, not for nothing, lives of some of our healthcare workers.
0: Sometime at the end of Q2, we will start getting the vaccine out to a much broader population. And if we are good at marketing the vaccine and getting people to adopt the vaccine, we will start to move over the summer to some degree of normality, I hope.
1: Our economy may come back to normal or close to normal more quickly. If we take this more seriously now, short-term pain for longer-term gain, we absolutely can't vaccinate our way out of this.
2: Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Vitalist Spark podcast. I'm your host, John Ford, and we're back with our second COVID-19 Roundtable update of 2021. The virus continues to spread substantially in Arizona, leaving few corners of life untouched. You'll hear quite a bit of discussion in this episode between our two guests about why that is. And you'll be hearing from two guests instead of three precisely because of COVID. Longtime participant Dr. Nicholas Vasquez started our session at the table, but was drawn away five minutes into the recording by the urgency of yet another COVID fatality. In fact, as we release this episode, the U.S. will record its 400,000th death from COVID-19, And you'll hear more perspective on that from Dr. Joshua LeBaire in just a few moments. 400,000 American deaths is a deeply troubling milestone. An urgent policy change will be needed to slow the spread and stem the tide of hospitalizations and deaths. Please contribute to slowing down the spread. Wash up, mask up, and shrink your circle. The more people we bump into, the more chance there is for COVID-19 to spread. It is that simple. The capacity of our healthcare system to care for Arizonans is at stake the well-being of our frontline healthcare workers is at stake. The lives of Arizonans are at stake. Do your part. Shrink your circle of contact. Be COVID smart. All right, let's get to it. It's time to talk about where we've gone wrong, how we might want to think about the rules of the road going forward, the latest on Operation Warp Speed and the warped rollout of vaccines, and when some sense of normality might return as of January 18, 2021. It is time yet again for another COVID-19 roundtable. Today, January 18th, we have joining us Dr. Joshua LaBert from ASU. How are you, sir? I am good. Thanks for having me. And a new face joining us today, Dr. Bob England. He's been the public health director for Maricopa County and Pima County, and he is here today to share his wisdom with us. Bob, how are you, sir?
1: I'm hanging in there. Good to be here.
2: Thanks for joining us. Let's get started. Josh, kick us off, let us know where we are now. Once again, Arizona
0: is leading the country and at various times the world in per capita incidence of the virus. We are experienced the worst wave of our history the the number that sticks out to me is that we are rapidly approaching a number of deaths in Arizona that will put this th- in terms of a 12 month window, the leading cause of death. It won't be per annum based on January to January because the numbers of deaths didn't start really coming here until March or so. Typically in a year, we have around 12,000 deaths from heart disease or cancer. And we are at 11,200 deaths now from COVID-19. And at the rate at which we are seeing deaths right now, it won't be but a week or two before in a 12-month window, it will be the leading cause of death. So pretty serious right now.
2: Shocking, too, that there's data at this point that shows that the rate of pediatric infection and hospitalization has gone screamingly fast high.
1: Wow. Yeah. yeah. And as more adults around kids get infected, more kids are going to get infected in the home. And that's usually the direction of transmission involving kids is from adults to kids what worries me even more about the death rate is that we've got so much more to come with new variants of the virus coming out you know viruses mutate that's what they do there are random mistakes in copying their genetic material and most of the time that doesn't result in anything that survives or is new but Anytime a virus mutates in a way that makes it more infectious, that new variant is the one that's going to spread now faster than the old ones and will outcompete, so to speak, the original variant. So if we've got even more infectious virus coming down the pike, which we almost certainly do, and our rate of infection becomes that much higher if we don't change our behavior, even though we're already swamped in our healthcare system, you're going to see it get even worse before we're out of this. And if that happens when we're already at capacity, we may have a higher death rate because we just can't take care of people as well. Every time that you see those state numbers, by the way, that say 93% of ICU occupancy, that's based on beds that don't have any people to take yeah. care of them. We're at 100% or beyond. We have fewer staff taking care of people in critical condition than you would normally have. And that's not just for COVID. It's for everything because they're overwhelmed and they're exhausted. And yet I'm really scared the worst is yet to come.
2: Yeah. I mean, is it possible at this point to even imagine a future that gets worse and how that will play out?
1: Sure. You'll exceed hospital capacity. They won't be able to take care of people. They're going to have to start triaging and making decisions about who gets care and who doesn't, depending on how the variants play out. We could be facing as many deaths going forward from this as we've had so far. And oh, by the way, other causes of death look worse, too, because of all the postponed care that everybody's been doing.
0: Right. It's hard to estimate what that will be yet, but clearly just looking at the way the hospitals are so occupied by COVID patients, people who need other forms of care, cancer surgeries, who've been ignoring chest pain for a while or whatever other causes, uh, those folks are trying to decide should they come to a hospital where they know the addition of a COVID-19 case is not going to improve their health. And so they're avoiding it, understandably, and that can't be good.
1: People hear the term elective procedures and think no big deal that the hospitals are putting off elective procedures. They're still medically necessary. You're not talking about facelifts. You're talking about people who are putting off procedures to work up their cancer, who are putting off screening procedures that means early detection of some conditions is not going to happen until we're out of this. The only way for us to protect ourselves is to take this societally more seriously. We slowed it down before during the summer. We know how to do it. We can do it again. And while it's not highly desirable, we've got to protect our healthcare system and our healthcare workers. Young people who statistically won't get into serious trouble as often as an older person, have to understand that when they do the calculus of risk taking, they're not taking the risk for themselves. It's an infectious disease. They're risking everybody downstream from them who might get unknowingly, unwittingly infected by them. And you're a link in a chain of transmission that we have a responsibility to each other to avoid. You know, I saw an article in the Republic about at least two concerts that have happened in the Valley lately with upwards of 100 people in a small venue, crowded in together without masks. And while you may not have concert goers wind up in the hospital from that, there will almost certainly be other people further downstream who will wind up in the hospital because of those. If we can't change behavior via persuasion, which history tells us you really can't very well, then we need to enforce it. We we just do. Healthcare workers are putting their lives on the line, trying to take care of people because somebody further upstream couldn't manage to abide by some pretty simple mitigation measures.
2: The Journal for the American Medical Association, finally known as JAMA, published a research letter tracking pediatric rates of infection from May to November. In Arizona, in May, pediatric infection rate on a per 100,000 basis was 2.0. By November, it was 32.8. Wow. What is that? Is that evidence of community spread finally reaching children? Is it evidence of new variants? Is
0: it both? First of all, I would say it's the former. I think it's community spread reaching kids. And the classic path here is that the, the parents actually collect the virus out and about and then bring it home to the family. Although there have been some cases of kids getting it in sporting events and whatnot. But There's not a lot of strong evidence to suggest it's happening in schools. I don't think that is the primary source of transmission. I think it's parents bringing it home. Once it gets into a household, it's hard to keep it from everybody else in the household. That's a serious problem. We don't have strong evidence right now that the big variants that we're worried about the B117, which is the UK variant, and the B1315, the South African variant, are in Arizona yet. We certainly know the UK variant is in the US, although it's not high. It's probably 100 or something reported cases are around there in the entire country. We've been looking for it in Arizona using the test that we run at ASU, which would pick it up if that pattern emerged. Although we've seen that pattern. When we've gone to verify it, it's turned out to be something else. It's not yet turned out to be the UK variant. It may well be somewhere in Arizona, but it's not common.
2: There have been a number of times on this podcast where we have talked about how much fuel Arizona is burning through for community spread. But now it seems that we're just finding more fuel to burn.
0: There's still a great potential for people to get ill here. The problem is that no matter how many people get ill, at some percentage, people are going to die from it. And another percentage of people are going to have long-term consequences. So the more people that get infected, the more death we're going to see. And since we've already saturated or nearly saturated our healthcare system, more spread is going to be more problematic. There's nowhere for those people to turn to get the care they need.
1: To get a, a feel for just how prevalent it is right now, do some back of the envelope calculations here. Okay, we're coming in at a reported infection rate of nearly one percent per week, a thousand per hundred thousand population. Back in September, Maricopa County did an antibody survey, which showed that there were about three and a half times more people infected who had been infected at some point than they had reported. So testing is more available now. Let's shave a little bit off of that and just say it's three times. So that means 3%, roughly, of our population are getting infected in a given week. And half of those folks are asymptomatic. Most of the rest have mild symptoms. They're still walking around. And you're infectious for about a week and a half, right? Ten days or so on average. So take that 3%. We got something like 4 to 5% of all the people you see when you go out in public are shedding virus, Yeah, one in 20, one in 25. How can you think you can go to an indoor space and sit there for a couple of hours and not get exposed or have a good chance of getting exposed to this right. virus? And if one in 20, one in 25 people walking around are infectious, that means one in 20, one in 25 parents of kids are infectious. The number you quoted for kids winding up in the hospital, it's still smaller than what you get with adults by far. But it's a reflection of just how much all of us are getting potentially exposed.
0: I actually last week went on the record as saying that I thought it could be as high as 1 in 10 people are infectious. Certainly anywhere between 1 in 20 and 1 in 10, I think. I think it's very prevalent, just judging by the fact that at least for a while there, our seven day trailing average for new cases was something like 10,000 a day. It's dropped a little bit since then, but 10,000 a day, you take that every day for seven days and you figure people are, like you said, infectious for 10 days. That's, that's an extraordinary number of people walking around shedding virus. The numbers are staggering.
1: At this rate this is what's killing me. We, we created vaccine in record time. If we hit herd immunity this spring, it's not going to be because we vaccinated enough people. It's <laughs> going to be largely enough people got sick. It'll got- be a
0: combination. In terms of recent years, in terms of diseases that we are advocating for herd immunity, we've rarely reached herd immunity by infection alone. We've really needed some vaccination to get there. One worry I have is that people hear a lot of chatter about vaccines right now and i'm worried that psychologically that's tricking something in their heads that says you know what the vaccines are here we're good to go and it's hard for people to understand that the amount of vaccination we're doing right now isn't budging the frequency of infection right now with any luck in the coming month or two it will start to affect hospitalization rates by immunizing the most at-risk populations but the numbers are tiny compared to the population size. And we're nowhere near herd immunity from vaccination right now. It'll take a long time to get there.
2: Yeah. By the way, people don't need to trick themselves into that. On January 14th, the governor of Arizona said vaccination is the only solution.
0: It is not a full solution, certainly for a while. In the next six months, vaccination alone will not get us what we need. We need to continue wearing masks. I mean, I've been vaccinated and I still wear a mask. We need to.
1: Yeah. If you don't, with this rate of infection, you're going to guarantee that you're going to get exposed at some point. Yeah. And then you're relying on how well your vaccine worked for you. Right. And even if you have vaccine that is as efficacious as it looks and it's 95 percent, that's a one in 20 chance. Still, that's right. We're all going to have to continue mask wearing, distancing, not going to eat indoors, not going to bars until we hit herd immunity and the chance of getting exposed plummets. That really is going to be quite a ways off.
2: Four days before the governor said vaccination is the only way out, the White House Coronavirus Task Force released a report for Arizona saying that, quote, aggressive mitigation must be used to match a more aggressive virus. Right.
0: The New York Times did a piece over the weekend on this issue that there have been mixed messages coming from the federal government. On one hand, the White House's back office is sending all kinds of memos reminding us about all the mitigation factors we need to follow. But then the leadership gets out in public and pooh poos all these mitigation factors and raises questions about the efficacy of mask wearing and sends this sort of mixed message. And I think that has been unfortunate. I think that has led to a lot of confusion in people who wonder, do they really need to do these things? And I think that's been a part of the problem.
2: We've talked about this before on this podcast, how because of living with coronavirus now for almost a year, people have become their own amateur epidemiologists and their own amateur public health experts because there are so many conflicting messages. Bob, you have a unique perspective of this because you were previously the Maricopa County Department of Public Health director. And then during this pandemic, you were Pima counties. Do you see variation in how people behave, in how counties respond, in how municipalities respond? And do you see clues in that variation of response about what can and should be done now in order to avert the type of crisis you were discussing earlier within the healthcare system, which is already in place.
1: One of my biggest disappointments from this, and maybe I should have seen it coming, I don't know, is just how politicized everything about this got and how that grotesquely altered the messaging that was coming out. It's hard enough to modify behavior when you're consistent and clear and simple with your messaging, which this could easily have been. I mean, we all didn't know what to do at the very beginning. We all made mistakes at the very beginning, but once the data came in and it became clear that masking and social distancing and hand hygiene was the minimal steps that needed to happen, how that stat became politicized just astounds me. analogy I can make with the responsibility to protect your fellow citizens by wearing masks versus the freedom argument that you're impinging on my freedom is we're trying to keep society open. We're trying to keep businesses open. We're trying to save the economy. And what we're asking everyone to do in order to do that is just wear a mask and take this seriously and don't gather together without masks and so forth. To me, the freedom that's being called out is like freedom to go anywhere you want, drive anywhere you want on a public road. We all have that freedom. But none of us get to do that just as fast as we damn well please. And none of us get the freedom to take stoplights as a suggestion and ignore them if we want to. We have simple rules of the road so that your driving doesn't put somebody else at risk or at least as low risk as possible. That's all this is. We're saying, yeah, you can still go to the store. You can still go outside. You can still live your life. Just put on a mask. And it's like as if people insisted, I want to drive drunk and I don't care what you say about it. Or I want to drive 80 miles an hour down my residential street. You're impinging on my freedom if you tell me I can't.
0: There's another metaphor here, which is, I don't think any of the people who are complaining about the freedom to not wear masks would argue that people should be allowed to go around without pants on. It pretty much required wherever you go, you got to wear pants. To some extent, that's because of modesty issues. And some of that's because it's public health. Here we have documented evidence that wearing a mask protects public health.
1: Right now, I'd rather people wore a mask and nothing else. I want to go back to something when we were talking about the vaccine not getting us out of this. Our response to a slower than we wanted rollout of vaccine supply and vaccine administration just befuddles me. We respond by broadening the number of people who are now able to get it by class. First, we went very quickly to phase 1B, and then, We added classes of people, and at least in the state's opinion, dropped the age now down to 65 and up, which is a huge number of people. It's like saying, I got a big water tank. I'm trying to drain my water tank with a hose, and it's taken too long because the size of the hose is too small. Know what I'm going to do to fix that? I'm going to pour more water into the tank. That'll fix it. Now everybody's in the same tank together.
2: You went exactly where I was hoping to go, which is the fact that Operation Warp Speed is really quite warped. And it seems like (laughs) there are multiple factors here. We do have the supply issue. We also seem to have a horrible logistics issue related to the statewide website that basically, everybody's having frustrations with getting an appointment. We heard in a previous podcast episode that people registering in Goodyear are being sent to Snowflake for their shots. Josh, talk us through exactly where we think the system is now relative to both supply and to logistics.
0: Yeah, so a lot, lot of complicating factors. First of all, although Warp Speed put a lot of effort into manufacturing the vaccines, there really was not very much effort put into planning the actual getting those things into arms. And there are things that are challenging at several levels there. So you've mentioned several of them. The website needs obviously to get buffed up. There are challenges facing that. There was some misleading information coming about how much vaccine was available. People thought there was more coming, and it turned out that that supply doesn't exist. And then frankly, we need to get people to actually do the injections. The same people we need to do the injections, we need to take care of patients who are in the hospitals and some of them are needed actually to do testing. So there's a limited number of nurses or well-trained individuals who could actually give the vaccine. So lots of complications. It is true in previous efforts to get vaccines out. On one hand, you do need to limit the flow to the right populations, the highest risk populations. Those populations won't affect the overall spread of virus, but they will, we hope, limit the number of people who need to go in the hospital. If we can get those people vaccinated, we hope we can free up the healthcare system, which is what is most tasked right now. And those people are taxed in a serious way and they threaten everybody's health if we can't get those open. A big issue is getting the actual vaccine in hands. We just don't have the supply we thought we did. And as we go
1: forward, people made assumptions, I think, about how easy it would be to vaccinate folks. A lot of the vaccination is being done by volunteers. I have to tell you, I mean, I've been volunteering in a number of pods and people are willing to step up, but somehow we've got to build a larger number of those folks. People assumed that once the pharmacies had it, we'd have plenty and anybody could just walk into pharmacies and get it. Well, they're getting like a couple hundred doses at a time here and there because their business model isn't changing. They're not turning every pharmacy into a a new pod where everybody drives through and gets vaccine. They have a limited number of appointment slots so that the same pharmacist is filling pill bottles as doing shots, just like the current model for pharmacies giving vaccine. I don't know how to do this better but it's not just the appointment software that's tough. Just from observing, there's a lot of data being collected and people are asked a lot of questions when they go get their vaccine. And that's the slowest step, even though there's been registration and everything beforehand. And I don't know what institutional issues there are there. I don't know how much of that is being imposed by the feds. Maybe one of you guys do know.
0: I got my vaccine because of my clinical testing lab. Dignity did it here in Chandler, Arizona. Okay. I gotta say it was really well run. I, you know, hats off to them. I did fill out the pre-screen form that Maricopa County had set up, which did ask some screening questions to determine what my eligibility was. I didn't find it particularly onerous. It was probably 10 questions all told. And then really? um, getting to the vaccine site, there was a line of cars when I got there. I thought, okay, I'm in for it here. I was out in 25 minutes and that included the 15 minutes I had to wait to make sure I didn't get anaphylaxis. So it was pretty well run there.
1: So I've worked that pod two just one day and I wasn't doing the vaccinating. I was doing the, the monitoring where you sat in your car for 15 minutes. How did you get your second dose appointment?
0: I got an email about 10 days out when I was due saying you need to register for your next vaccine shot. So I followed that link and it worked for me. Okay, good. Yeah. yeah. Part of the concern has been a surprising number of healthcare workers did not take up on the 1A availability. I think maybe as much as 50% of people who were eligible didn't get their vaccine, which is a little surprising to me. And I think that may have shaken some folks thinking, well, maybe we should just open up the spigot a little bit more because maybe people are just not gonna adopt this thing. But then there was the 75 and olders really did want the vaccine and the 65 and olders really do want it as well. And so now we have this problem where you're right, you know, everybody's in this big giant vat waiting for a vaccine. that's not right there. I mean, this kind of stuff happens. It's a challenge.
1: There are definitely software issues. Yeah. And I have to tell you, I don't know that that's going to get fixed. The software appointment and tracking system is a procurement by the state. They contracted out and purchased something for a good amount of money. And I don't know that the vendor is doing anything more with it.
0: I do know when we set up the ASU saliva test, we spent a lot of time and effort developing the interaction and the website so that it was rock solid. It takes a lot of effort to make sure that those things work reliably. It's not trivial and you have to put effort into that. We learned a lot from the the calls we would get from whatever problems existed so that we could go back. Every week we run patches to improve the system and, and that's what they should be doing here.
2: Do we have any more pending vaccine approvals or are we stuck with two? What happened to AstraZeneca?
0: AstraZeneca got approved, I believe in, didn't it get approved in England? I think that there are some vaccines that are out there. AstraZeneca made an error in my view. Aren't they the ones that did two different doses in two different countries? So they didn't get enough evidence for one particular plan. And so that slowed everything down. They made the cardinal mistake of not coordinating their trials properly. So those things will still come. The mRNA vaccines work remarkably well. Some of the other vaccines will work. It's not clear that they're going to work as well as the mRNA vaccines, and that's been an education for all of us. We'll see how they do. I think there are still more to come. And of course, there will be more down the road as people adapt vaccines to be more polyvalent. Right now, the vaccine focuses on one key instruction, but people will probably put in other proteins in there to get more coverage. That's what's happened historically in other vaccines as well.
1: That's a really good point to make, that yes, there are more vaccines coming down the pike in the short run, but also assuming this is here to stay and assuming that immunity isn't lifetime and we're going to need some kind of repeat dosing at some interval down the road, the type of vaccine we're going to be using years from now is almost certainly not going to be the same that we're using right now. For one thing, you should get better herd immunity from a vaccine if you get mucosal immunity from the vaccine Mm. instead of just antibody. ASU even is working on a vaccine, hopefully that would be intranasal so that you get mucosal immunity as well. And there are other ones out there, I'm sure. As people see this evolve, I hope people don't get confused by the fact That recommendations will continue to change. Vaccines will continue to change. What we know about frequency of vaccination is going to continue to change. That's not because we don't know what we're doing. It's because we're learning as we go and we'll be getting better.
0: The old adage in medical school was that half of what they teach you in medical school will be wrong. The question is, which half?
1: Yeah.
2: By the way, ironically, that's the exact same thing they tell you about advertising. (laughs) Based on where we are today, what does the timeline for return to some sense of normalcy look like? There have been projections in the past that it could be this fall, that it could be this summer that will never return to normal because we're always going to have this pandemic. We're always going to have this virus out there. Give people a sense because they want to know how much longer. And businesses want to know, when can I return to some sense of like, I could make some money as opposed to I'm just barely scraping by. And factor in the fact that a little bit later this week, we've got a new president being inaugurated. I'm going to ask Josh to go first.
0: I'm going to start by saying that we will always have this virus with us. I don't think that it's going to go away in the near term anyway. So we do have to prepare that in the future, we'll always have to do some things, including potentially boosters on vaccines. That said, I'm going to be the optimist here and say that I do think that once these companies get good at manufacturing the vaccine, and it's not a simple thing, making a vaccine, you want safety. And so you have to make it carefully and you have to verify the batches are good. That said, I think sometime at the end of Q2, we will start getting the vaccine out to a much broader population. And if we are good at marketing the vaccine and getting people to adopt the vaccine, we will start to move over the summer to some degree of normality, I hope. We need to achieve herd immunity. That's key. That will prevent us from having a breakout epidemic anymore. It won't make the virus go away, and it won't mean the infections will stop, but it will prevent the epidemic part. And I think that's what we're trying to get to. Bob?
2: Bob? Roll all those factors up in your head. What do you think?
1: I wish I had a crystal ball. I'd like to know when we're getting back to normal, too. I agree completely that this virus or some variant or variants of it are going to be with us for good, probably. One good thing historically that sometimes happens when viruses mutate over time is they become more infectious. That's why they become the dominant strain. But oftentimes less deadly it'll make you less ill in a historic perspective so this thing may be a less severe but annual coronavirus that comes around going forward ironically in the long run i think our economy may come back to normal or close to normal more quickly if we take this more seriously now and return to some of the more severe mitigation measures while we're at the peak of it right now to try and beat it back down quicker and earlier in the springtime short-term pain for longer-term gain we absolutely can't vaccinate our way out of this not with the vaccine supply and logistics that we're able to do right now it'll just take too long. You mentioned change in federal administration. I don't know how much of a difference that will make in some aspects, but I really am anticipating two things to happen. One, our messaging is going to be consistent, at least at the federal level. We're going to have experts saying what we need to know rather than having it be different variations from different officials it would be really really helpful if state and local officials elected and otherwise could fall into line with that messaging so that people are not getting conflicting messages and can understand how important our own actions are that's one thing the other thing i expect is real transparency out of the federal government we should know much better going forward about supply and delivery kind of issues. And again, I really hope we see the same thing from the state here, where the issues are more clear, the mistakes that we're all making are owned up to, and we learn from them and adapt. I made some whopper of mistakes in the early months of this thing. First, I was trying to preserve face masks for healthcare workers, but I really didn't think cloth masks were going to make a difference. Boy, was I wrong. But once you get the data and you learn from it, you admit it and you change your course as best you can. Same thing needs to happen here. Just recommending certain things and not enforcing them historically in public health doesn't work. We need mandates for certain things. And right now, to save lives, not for nothing, lives of some of our healthcare workers, we've got to close down bars and, in my opinion, indoor dining as well until we turn the corner.
2: All right. One last quick question. What, as of January 18th, 2021, are you most optimistic about related to this pandemic?
0: Josh, go ahead. Simple answer, of course, would be that we got lucky this time and we were able to build a vaccine in a relatively short amount of time. That is extraordinarily efficacious considering that many vaccines that we tried at end up, even after many years, are only 60% effective. So I'm optimistic that if we can get people to adopt it, it will ultimately be a game changer for us, understanding that there are a lot of things to get through in order to get people to adopt it. But if we can get it into people's arms, I think it will help us a lot.
2: Okay, sidebar. So what do you attribute that besides luck? Because my answer to that would be two decades of bench research.
0: Yeah, no, there's no question. This was not a surprise. Getting these vaccines is, is the absolute result of decades of work on developing better and better vaccines and learning ways to improve vaccines. There's a tremendous amount of science that went into making these vaccines successful. The old joke is that after years of working hard at this, I'm an overnight success. And that's exactly what happened here. And the effort to fund many different companies' approaches, the fact that many different groups tried at the same time And not all of them were. And so we're lucky that a couple were. And that is going to help us get out of the woods. But as we've talked about today, that's not enough. We're going to have to continue to improve these vaccines if we're going to have a long-term go of this.
2: Bob, what are you optimistic about as of January 18th?
1: I hope that when we're through this and we're done, looking back at it gives us new insights. One, that we're all in this life together and that your personal safety depends on what somebody else does. And that means we all have a responsibility to each other. The other thing I hope is that people have a newfound respect for what the term essential worker means and how reliant we are on other people to keep each other alive and especially appreciate those who stepped up and took extraordinary risks to take care of people and not just in the hospitals and the ICUs, but especially people like the nursing assistants in long-term care. Who, despite knowing patients were infected with COVID, still sponge bathed them and took care of them in every way. That really says something about us.
2: Thank you, Bob, and thank you, Josh. As Bob pointed out throughout his first visit to our roundtable, we could use some reflection and recalibration regarding how we think about this pandemic's rules of the road, how we choose to do or not do things. And especially how we honor essential workers and healthcare personnel. If Dr. Nick Vasquez had been able to attend this recording session, there's no doubt in our minds that some Arizonans' current behaviors would be declared not just risky, but more like a slap in the face to healthcare folks who at the same time are getting lip service about being heroic. Given where Arizona stands regarding community spread, perhaps it's time for all of us to be more heroic ourselves in terms of behavior change that could help turn the tide of hospital system stressors in particular. Yes, This is your second reminder from Vitalist to please be more COVID smart. Wash up, mask up, and shrink your circle. As Bob and Josh's rough calculations demonstrated, as many as one in 10 of the people you bump into out there are likely shedding virus without knowing it. The best defense of our healthcare workers, our families, and our fellow Arizonans is not to bump into folks at all. And if we do, to do it in well-ventilated spaces for the shortest possible amounts of time. Now is truly the time to double down on healthy, low-risk choices. The Vitalist Spark will be back with another episode next week. In the meantime, our back catalog of episodes awaits your ears. There's a lot to listen to, including guests from across the state and national experts, too. Visit us on the web at vitalisthealth.org podcast. Check out all of our current and past episodes on Spotify, or simply reach into that podcast app you are using right now and select another show to find out what's going on related to health and well-being in Arizona. That's it for this episode. The insights, reflections, and takeaways from this dialogue belong at the family dinner table as much as they do in business settings, in city and town halls, and in the domains of healthcare and public health. So please share this independent episode far and wide. Subscribe to the Vitalist Spark podcast to get notified as soon as new episodes are released. Or listen to the Vitalist Spark just like you listen to your favorite music on Spotify. Give us your feedback wherever you get your podcasts. Or you can also give us your input the old-fashioned way. Your corrections, complaints, and compliments, they are all welcomed by emailing us at feedback at vitalisthealth.org. Finally, remember this. With great responsibility comes great power. We'll see you back on the road to well-being soon.